first one is very, very serious, man. Whose hairy arm is that wearing one of the Marvel watches? That is absolutely. Episode of the Red Pill Generation. It's Cafe Mocha here, sexy, sultry, and I have a awesome guest today. His name is yeah, <laughs> I'm Luke Francis, <laughs> coming at you from Charlotte, North Carolina. Yeah, man, I'm I'm excited to have you on the podcast, man. Like, yeah, I'm I know to be Luke. Here. I know Luke via InterChina. You guys have heard me talk about InterChina a ton, and. You know, one of the reasons why, like, we've hung out a, a bunch of times. Uh, you stayed at my place in Guangzhou before, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then I, I was down in Shenzhen for your party, your birthday recently. Oh yeah, <coughs> yeah. Korean barbecue, <laughs> Korean barbecue, and tons you know, of fake beer. Tons of fake beer, man. You had fake whiskey when you came down to Guangzhou. Oh, that was rough. Perry's, man. I, my friends just came down from Canada last week, and I took them to Perry's. You know, they just barely survived. Yeah. yeah. Nobody should be able to survive that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, something just, something just happens, I think, after a while. You kind of just, your body starts to learn how to synthesize <laughs> yeah. this, this horrible whiskey, you know. Yeah. I'm sure there's but, better places to hang out in Guangzhou. <laughs> of course, of course, they're just expensive. Man. Like, right, uh, right. This is the cheap option, right? It's the cheap option. This is the bootstrapping budget right there. It is definitely the bootstrap. That's why all the students are there. I mean, what other places? Actually, there's not that many places in the world where... You could go and get like a bucket of whiskey for five dollars. You know, it's like <laughs> Thailand, and know. a bucket is an accurate description of what you get. <laughs> yeah, it's literally a bucket. You know, yeah. I I think you guys were messed up for a couple of days after that, right? Yeah, I, I had like a perpetual headache for four days. <laughs> oh man. Anyways, uh, now that I'm coming up in the world a little bit, like I try to try to actually drink real whiskey, right? Branch know? out a bit. Try to branch out <laughs> a little bit. Um, Aries, but one of the main reasons we wanted to have you on today is like you just launched a Indiegogo campaign mm-hmm. a week ago, right? Like you want to talk to the people about what your what your product is? Yeah, absolutely. So about five days ago, I launched a watch on Indiegogo. Um, it's a um, aluminum watch made from reclaimed airplane aluminum, and it's a minimalist watch. Um, pretty big face to it um just a style piece basically um and it's been doing pretty well actually uh yes actually well this would be saturday um for the campaign here i had a thirty thousand dollar day and so that put me up yeah it was nuts um and and you know i'd love to talk to you more about how that happened and i think we're going to get into that a little bit later but right now i'm sitting at about fifty eight thousand six hundred and sixty with 454 contributors yeah, man, it, it's it's insane. Like it, it's like what six days in? You still have yeah 20, six days twenty twenty five days left. That's that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, I'm blown away by the results. But right. you know, this is what preparation and and some other factors get you, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, for sure we're gonna talk about that more in depth uh, as we go on in the podcast. But I want to say like, let's start at the beginning. So. You already mentioned you're from Charlotte. I'm mm-hmm. sure some people already picked up the North Carolina. Hey, like, y'all. Um, <laughs> the little, little twang. 
I hope not. I'm trying to lose that. <laughs> you try to lose a twenty. You have to yeah. keep that, man. That's that's swagger, right there. The man. swagger, the southern swagger, huh? Yeah, you, you have to keep that. I wish it, I had some twang. I can't, you know, I, I can't do it seriously. <laughs> people, people, people would catch me like. But um, I want to start at the beginning. So, like, you know, tell us a little, just a little bit about like how you grew up, or what shaped you into who you are, bringing it to like this idea, you know? Yeah. So you know, I went to school for. Um, actually international business and for me it was always about getting over to China I was just fascinated by that that culture in in China and I didn't know how I was going to get there or like what was going to get me there and I thought it was going to be the corporate environment so I went for international business hoping that I could you know become a cog in a wheel basically and Mm -hmm. and uh and get some sort of finance job maybe or or work in marketing at some corporation over in Shanghai and out of college actually that is that's actually what I did I I did an internship in Shanghai um, during college for for the summer and then after college I ended up working for that company um, and was working as a a marketing guy in their Charlotte office here Um, but it became like real clear that they weren't going to send me um, to China after about two years of working there. And so I just got fed up and I said, I'm just going to go to China and I'm going to make something happen myself. <laughs> I had always wanted to be entrepreneurial and, um, didn't really know what that was going to look like. Uh, but I was kind of looking at options and I came across inner China. Actually, it was my mom who introduced me to inner China. <laughs> Whoa, your mom, my what? mom. Yeah. <laughs> I wish my mom was deep like that. (laughs) Yeah, she was like, you got to check these guys out. And then I actually that same week that she mentioned it, um, I was looking at Sean Ogle's blog. I don't know if you know about Location 180. Yeah, of course. Um, But yeah, he he, uh, was working with them at the very beginning of InterChina. And so I had gotten this email because I was on his email list and it talked about the launch of InterChina. So I ended up signing up for it. And, uh, you know, meeting Nick and Tim and some other guys and you as well. And and that's kind of the start of trying to figure out, like, what's going to happen for me in China. I know you contacted Tim and Nick and you, you kind of said, hey, I've got experience in marketing and I would love to come and work for you while I, I can focus on my own project. Yeah. So for me, you know, I had done extensive research about going over to China and everything that you read says, you know, start out with teaching English. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and that's the route that you went and it's not a, it's not a bad route, but, um, I had read so many negative reviews about teaching Chinese kids in China (laughs) how to speak English. I was like, I do not want to be one of those stories. (laughs) Yeah, dude. Like I, you know, I, I literally got very lucky. Like I could have gone in the opposite route. I could have ended up teaching at a kindergarten, but then I got lucky with this private tutoring center that I'm, I, I, I work at, well, not really anymore, but you know, I got very fortunate. Like every mm-hmm. other person I've heard who came to China, their first job was like a nightmare. You know, yeah, it's just straight chaos. You're just straight chaos, crowd yeah. control the whole time. <laughs> mm. But uh, yeah, so I didn't. I didn't really want to teach English, so I was just looking everywhere for a different kind of job. And it kind of hit me that hey, I can offer these guys some help. I know that they have um, other businesses that they're doing, so they probably need some help with with this business as well so i said hey guys um i can help you out with some seo with some website stuff you know general marketing for social media or whatever it is that you need i i have experience in that kind of area um and 
you know, I offered very specific advice and they said, okay, yeah, that'd be, that'd be good. And so I started kind of helping them out with inner China and that's really what, um, made it easy for me to make the transition to China and not have to worry about, um, I guess like the income side of things. I had saved up a bunch, so it's not like I was making a bunch helping out Tim and Nick mm-hmm. with inner China, um, at all, but, um, that kind of made it a little bit more, uh, comfortable on the mind, you know, so I didn't mm-hmm. have to stress as much. I just think that that's a, you know, that's an awesome way to come down here is just to sort of like talk to the people who, you know, you want to, basically emulate what they've done right so exactly you, you, mm-hmm. you contact them and you say hey you know like i have this value i can provide you know and uh i would i want to do what you guys have done if if i come there i can get, provide you with these skills while i also kind of you know learn from you and then eventually work on my own thing right exactly uh, and i'm sure a ton of people here are looking for you know good guys who can come and help them out with their businesses in china like i'm now in that position where I have Chinese staff, mm, mm-hmm. but it, like you know, my my partner I probably shouldn't say his name unless I'll get connected to him. But my partner, he's he's told me before. He's like, man, let's not like let's not go down the route of having like five, six Chinese staffers. If we can get people real cheap right now mm-hmm. for simple shit, then awesome. Everything else, we we should probably look into like outsourcing or or finding another foreigner or somebody who just gets it because you end up you know you end up like micromanaging situations so like if i'm right now if i had the money i would love to bring down a dude from the states or canada who gets it and who maybe has his own entrepreneurial ambitions and then could work for me in some way shape or form uh, yeah while doing his own thing you know well there's so many barriers you don't have to break through when you're working with somebody that already understands your cultural preferences and your you know they speak the language perfectly um, and they're willing. They have they have the hustle, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think the the general Chinese mindset is how can we do this the easiest way possible, and yeah, cut I mean, as many we, corners as possible. <laughs> yeah, I mean last last week I spent you know half an hour explaining to my assistant what a hashtag is. You know, <laughs> I was just like, man, I just I don't I don't want to explain this. Like, <sighs> and I explained this, it even sounds stupid to me as I explain it to you. So I I can imagine she's like, why the fuck are you? hashtag like why why can't you just write a message why do you have to <laughs> why do you have to put a hashtag <laughs> like it, it connects like it's funny come on just do it okay like <laughs> don't ask questions just do what <laughs> i say <laughs> just do what i say but uh yeah so I, at that stage when you contacted timonic did you already have the idea of doing the indiegogo did you have an idea of the what you wanted to do already or was it something you figured out as you were working with them yeah so i had the idea for the watch already um mm-hmm. And I had pretty much come to this point where I couldn't do anything else with that Mm. project unless I got to China. And Mm. so that's why I had to move. Um, So backing it up a bit, um, in June of 2014, I joined InterChina, and that's when I started looking at my options. And I did a lot of research, and I found that watches on crowdfunding websites were performing really well. And so it was... At that point, it was just about, okay, now i got to figure out, like, what is this watch going to look like? And how the heck do you make a watch? <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. so, you know, at that point, I figured out, all right, this is what it looks like to manufacture a watch. This is the design that I'm going for. And actually, I remember sitting at a 
a table in Starbucks looking at my Mac and I was like, this Mac is designed just exquisitely. You know, it's just, it looks beautiful. The aluminum, the edges, the curves, everything about it is just sexy, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I said, how can I take that design, kind of that the inspired by Apple feel here and put that in a watch? And, and that was like the initial thought that led to the finished product that I have now. Um, and so I, that was in June of 2014. I took it to a designer in Pakistan, actually, via Odesk, which is now Upwork. And yeah. we went back and forth for like three months until he had created a finished product that I was happy with and ready to move forward with. Um, nice. And so, yeah, after that, I was just getting the drawings. And then, and then at that point, I was stuck. It was like, well, I've got drawings, but I don't have a factory and I can't really make anything without a factory. So. So it's two things, one observation and then one question. The first okay. one is, it's interesting, like you were looking at how, you know, on crowdfunding websites, a ton of watches were being successful. And your perspective was, okay, I want to do the same thing. How can I make mine, you know, stand out? How can I, I take that concept and, and improve on it somehow? Or right, have right. a unique unique spin on it. For me, when I looked at that, I was like, man, this is saturated. You know, that's, that's <laughs> it's funny. When I, when I saw that, I was like, man, yeah, of course, there's a lot of watches. I was like, I'm definitely not doing a watch, you know. <laughs> it's, it's and just, even on Inner China, there's a lot of people doing watches. Doing watches right now, it, it's. <laughs> To me, I get put off, you know, I was like, right. it's interesting how you could have been like, okay, you know, I'm going to have a completely different spin on it. Just the mindset is, uh, that's funny. That's um, like a, a challenge to approach, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but then the question was like, why Pakistan? Why Upwork? Why not, you know, uh, do something locally? I'm assuming partially is a, a financial thing. It's cheaper. Oh, but, yeah. Like, was there any, did anyone suggest it to you? Had you worked with Upwork before? Like, oh, how did that come about? Yeah, so I had worked with uh, with Upwork before, um, and you know, I'm I actually have not yet had a negative experience with Upwork. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that can give you horror stories. Um, all of mine have been really positive. Uh, you know, I, I actually just as a, a quick aside here, I find that if you're hiring on Upwork, if you're very detailed about what you want, you end up being happy in your hiring decision. Um, but if you're kind of ambiguous, then, you know, it goes to stand that you probably won't be happy with what you get back. Um, but anyway, so I ended up going with Upwork just cause I, I knew that it was going to be a inexpensive option to get quality work. And because people in Pakistan, they, the labor rates there are a lot cheaper. And if I'm using the U S dollar to purchase, you know, their, their work, then it's going to work in my favor. You know, just geo geo arbitrage there. <laughs> yeah. So I ended up uh, hiring a guy. You know, I I looked all over the world. It, you know, it wasn't like I was just focusing on Pakistan. But the guy that was most qualified came from Pakistan, um, and I liked his his resume. So I just ended up going with him. Yeah. Okay. That that makes sense. You know, I think for me personally, you know, I've I've worked a little bit of Upwork. Like right now, in terms of data mining and stuff, I've got a couple of people working for me. I'm trying to implement more like a sort of VAs and stuff into my business. Mm-hmm. I ha- I have one friend who's had some horrible experiences with people from, you know, India and Pakistan. And then he's had some amazing experiences with people from there. And then also like the Philippines and stuff. So I, I think it's just like, I think of when I think of Upwork, I think more VA and not design, you know? Yeah. You know, the way I describe it to people who ask even what Upwork is, 
is yep. that Upwork, if it can be done on a computer, yeah, somebody on Upwork can provide that Some, skill. Somebody can do it, yeah. Mm-hmm. You are thinking you're working with the design, and then you think about aluminum. Like, How does the idea of aircrafts come into play? Yeah, so it was, for me, I wanted to play into this. Uh, my marketing angle was going to be uh, taking full control of your life, um, mm-hmm. living everyday adventures. And this is something that's kind of been the battle cry of the millennial generation, um, living life to the fullest, you know. And I wanted that to be representative in my brand, but not just in the brand, in the product itself. Um, and so my tagline ended up morphing into live a history worth retelling. And nice. the reason I chose airplanes is because each uh, piece of metal that you're wearing on your wrist with a Morveau watch came from something that had a history. So if I'm encouraging my people to live a history worth retelling and they're wearing a piece on their wrist that is um, carrying a previous history – now it's up to the wearer to take that history to the next level. Um, and so it's kind of passing the baton, if you will. Yeah, man, that's like a, it's an amazing concept, I think, because a lot of people start to, like when you first think about it, I, I'm thinking about, oh, I could be wearing a watch, you know, that was flown by a pilot in like World War Two. you know. It's exactly. Just like, mm-hmm. It's just, you, there's so many different possibilities as to the history of your watch. And I think that appeals to a lot of people. And if you look into it, I mean, aluminum is the most recycled metal in the world. And it's used in like so many high performance environments like F1 racing, um, you know, aircrafts it's used in high design like your macbooks and other and other tech products so i was thinking you know in, in the future there's so much potential for me to um you know find salvage vehicles salvage airplanes salvage tech products and just mold those into different editions of the watch um and and sell those to you know specific buyers who are interested in those in those prospective areas all right so you have the concept and you know you're, you're maybe you join into China. What is the first step that you take? Uh, one of, obviously, one of them is getting a design, going back and forth. But what are the the initial steps that you think were very important at the beginning? I mean, it's all mindset, honestly. Um, if your mind is not in a place where you believe that you can succeed, then it's never going to happen. I mean, yeah. you could you could take those first steps. And do, you know, get your designs and, and start thinking about what your idea is. But the moment you touch down and the moment you hit any sort of bump in the road or meet any sort of wall, you're going to give up. Um, and yeah. this this happens a lot in China. I think you could probably attest to this as well, cafe. It's like I think with anything, man. I think there's always a, there's always a lot of people who will try something. I think the statistic remains true. It's like 10% of people actually go through it. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first started doing the example I always give with my friends is like when we first started doing pickup there was a huge group of us there was a bu- probably about 30, 40, 50 guys who were all sort of in the same level same mindset and you know within a month when it's not as exciting anymore it's not like oh you know I'm learning all these cool things and trying them out when it actually starts to become difficult they all dropped out and then it ended up just being like six or seven guys out of the 
out of the 40 that yeah. were initially there, you know. So I think that that rings true with any sort of aspect, whether it's business, whether it's, you know. Anything with a challenge. Anything with a challenge, exactly. You know, like when the push comes to shove, I think the most successful people are just able to push through the pain. Like mm-hmm. That's the key, that's mm-hmm. key thing. Yeah. yeah, business has, starting this business has definitely taught me discipline. Um, yep. Because there is no manager of your time outside of yourself. Yeah. So what were the initial failures? The initial failures? <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. I would say that my experience has been fairly um, hiccup-free. Um, really? The, the only, I would say I've had more frustrations than failures so far. Um, things dealing with the factories and, and, you know, traveling problems and stuff like that, but nothing that was so great that it would kind of derail you and, and get you second guessing. I guess I've always been on trajectory of kind of going forward and up, which has definitely been a privilege for this first business that I'm starting here. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know, maybe that's good preparation. I, you know, maybe I, I made all the right steps up front. Or maybe I'm just lucky. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm sure it's luck, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, oh, what do we failures? Oh, no, I didn't have any failures. Yeah. You know? um, but then, okay, so you're talking about you know making your own schedule and, and sort of being disciplined. So if you didn't have any failures per se, frustration, difficulties, like what's something specific that you could uh, that you think would ring true with most people in that situation? Yeah. Uh, you know, I waste a lot of my time. Um, and actually, I will say two things. I waste a lot of my time and I don't enjoy a lot of my time, which is it's kind of a miserable way to <laughs> to be. Um, but let me explain that so you can kind of get a feel for what it's like. So, you know, I, I used to work in a corporate environment and I worked eight hours a day and I went home and I did whatever I wanted when I went home. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the weekends, that was my time too. So I knew when I could do the things that I wanted um, to have fun. Uh, but now that I work for myself, you know, I I have to tell myself when to have fun. But I'm yeah. always plugged into the to the watch business thinking about how can I optimize? What am I not doing that I need to be doing? And so even when I'm trying to have fun, there's this little voice in the back of my head that's always telling me that you need to do more. You need to do more. You need to stop having fun because you're kind of leaving money on the table if you're doing anything that's not work, um, which if you think about it, it's counterintuitive to why I even started doing this because I started down this entrepreneurial path because I wanted to reclaim my time. I wanted that freedom, but now I'm not even giving myself the opportunity to have that freedom. So I would say watch out for that um, because it's a tricky balance that you have to manage and it, it can make you miserable um, in doing what you're doing. I agree. And at the same time, I'm like, I disagree You mm. know, in, in the sense that yeah, like we, to a certain extent, if you're passionate about business, which I'm sure you are, you're passionate about your watches. I'm passionate about you know my company right now, and I I find that like it's fun to work on the business. It's fun to grow it. Absolutely. At the same time, the part where I agree is that even though it's fun, it is still work, so you can get burnt out. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. that that's where I think the delicate balance comes into it. Is like the reason why it, it's addictive is because you know you're passionate about it and you yeah. enjoy it, and it's your company, it's your baby. And then at the same time, you forget that hey, you know, if you're working like 
16 hours a day or 15 hours a day seven days a week like at some stage you're gonna burn out and crash you know yeah and and the the worst part about that is is that it's if you reassess your time you'll like in my situation i see that a lot of time i'm not even um operating within productive time (laughs) (laughs) um i i will find ways to uh distract myself throughout the day which makes my my necessary work that i have to get done in order to be successful um, and it just extends it even longer um, and I enjoy the work that I do but there's always things that you will find that can distract you and um, especially you know this happens in the corporate environment also but it happens even more when nobody's wa- looking over your shoulder and telling you what to do um, and so I find myself often getting distracted and maybe I'm just a distracted human being, but there are, there are tools out there that can definitely help you to focus more and, and be more productive with the time that you're, you are spending on your work. Um, but that, that is definitely one of the challenges that I have is, is, um, having consistent productive time. So what distracts you? Is it like, you know, YouTube? Like what Yeah. The, the typical culprits, right? YouTube, yeah. Facebook, um, and then also, I just consume so much information about how to do business, which is deceptive, right? Because you're, you think you're reading quality material that will grow your business. But if you're wasting all your time looking, learning about how to do business and not actually doing business, you're not actually creating a business. You're just yeah. puffing your head up with knowledge that, you know, you're not applying. So, Yeah, one of my friends that I interviewed a while ago, his name is Bold Russian. And he, he said this thing. I don't know where it was. I think it was from from like a book. And I always think about that periodically. And he was like, uh, he said, you know, one thing you have to watch out for when you are in an entrepreneurship mindset is you're not playing business and you're actually doing business, mm. right? Yeah. So he's, he's like, a lot of people can get caught up playing business, which is like, you know, putting on a suit you know reading i mean reading interesting business books going to the office sitting in an office just like sitting at your computer feeling like you, you know you're you're doing business but you're not actually doing business you're not being productive you're just kind of playing business you know yeah that's yeah. that's said a lot more eloquently than i i just said that <laughs> <laughs> hey but it's from a book i didn't i didn't you know that's why i have the podcast bro <laughs> but uh yeah, so okay, so you're talking about that uh, productivity. You said actually there are a couple of things that you use for productivity. What do you use? Are there any uh, things that you would uh, recommend to anybody else? Yeah, um, the names are blanking on me now. I might have to shoot them over to you for the notes. Um, yeah, we could do that in uh, the podcast notes. Yep. Do you have like a, a morning routine? Yeah, I am um, notoriously terrible with morning routines. Um, and I, it's so funny. I read this blog, uh, Taylor Pearson. I don't know if you've heard of him. No, um, I haven't. He worked with the tropical NBA guys as one of their interns. Um, and he writes a blog. Wait, was, about, he, was he interviewed recently on, on tropical NBA? Very likely because he just came out with a book called the end of jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I, I listened to that episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's, I love his stuff. Um, he's always thinking very critically about how we do business and how we create systems that are set up for success. Um, and, and one of the things that he talks about is the value of a morning routine. And he kind of, uh, pulls together, um, all these, you know, big influencers, 
you know, from around the world that are, you know, billionaires, multimillionaires, whatever, very successful people. And, and he distills it down to one of the things that makes them the way they are is having consistent routines. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those things I've always recognized the, um, the value in, but I've never actually um, found myself getting into a morning routine. <laughs> Yeah, man. For me, one of the biggest things with the morning routine, definitely for productivity, it's been a big change in my life. But like I used to be I used to hate mornings, man. I used to really hate waking up early. Like it was just I hated it like with the passion, you know, for 10 years, you know. And then it was uh, listening to the, the Tim Ferriss podcast and like reading his blog and stuff. And he was talking about how there were small things that he was mentioning. He was like, you know, one of the things that can help you with stress in a day-to-day basis is just making your bed, just simply making your bed in the morning mm-hmm. when, you, yeah. when you get up. He's like, it's just, it's it's one thing that you know you can control. And when, yeah. you come back, when you come back home, you look at your bed and your bed is made and it's like there's a peaceful moment. And it's yeah. it's true. It's like, you What's know, if you... Sorry. It's like uh, you have the, the to-do list, right? And you're checking yep. off all these things. That's an yep. early win, right, in the That's morning. A, yeah, exactly. And for me, for sure, like I, when I, before, I, just, I, I used to care about making my bed, but I was like neither here or there. I'd like make my bed half of the time. Mm-hmm. Now it's like as soon as I wake up, it's one of the first things, first things you do. First thing you do, yeah. And then when I, when I come home at the end of the day, I walk into my room and I see my bed is nice and made and there's like a relaxation mm, moment where mm-hmm. I just kind of go like, oh, that's my bed. It's nice. You know, there's that moment. And in the morning, like you said, it, it is part of that. It is part of that, uh, that first win. Mm-hmm. So that was like one of the first things I started doing. And then I consciously decided to create a morning routine. So I, like, I wake up, first thing is put on like a podcast episode by somebody that inspires me whether it's Tim Ferriss or Tropical NBA or Smart Passive Income something like that and that kind of like even if I'm lying in bed and I'm kind of still in a daze it it really starts to switch my brain on and it gets me inspired and then I will go like now I'll probably make like a poor tea Mm, mix mm -hmm. with coffee Mm -hmm. if not I might make a juice in the morning and that's sort of the routine that gets me fired up you know yeah and so i can I, attest to that because uh when i was uh when i was staying with you that is exactly the routine you did <laughs> yeah yeah it's just like that's just my thing you know yeah. and it, it really just it just gets me going in the morning you know like even the days when i wake up like fuck i don't want to get out of bed it's just something you know it just it gets me going okay let's bring it to like you get to china you, you come to china what 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 are the first things you start doing in china in terms of your project Yeah, so I landed in Hong Kong to begin with and stayed there with a few friends for a week and a half. And while I was there, the first thing I I needed to do was secure a factory. And so I had already decided kind of who the factory was going to be. It was just a matter of initiating that that order to uh, make the prototypes. And so that first week, I just signed that contract and said yes to the factory and they started working on my designs um, right away and then and then after that it was a matter of moving to Shenzhen finding a place to stay and uh, you know making sure that um, the factory is moving along with my prototype how did you how did you find the factory uh, it was actually a connection through interchina um, 
I had started looking on Alibaba for factories, you know, just typing in watch factories, looking for ones that were, um, you know, working with other brands that are on Kickstarter, Indiegogo, and then working with bigger brands, even like a fossil or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was finding some factories there, you know, trying to find the right fit. And then I stumbled across the factory I ended up working with through a connection in inner China. And it was just a really good fit at that point. And they had been doing a lot of specifically crowdfunding watch campaigns. And so they understood my needs and that was just, it was a no brainer. And so I ended up going with them. That's so crazy. Like it's probably getting to a stage where you have factories that will like go after the crowdfunding niche, you know? Yeah, I'm pretty sure my factory just calls up every watch company on Indiegogo and Kickstarter and says, "Hey, so, hey, we can, we can, we know what you need. We've done it before." Exactly. <laughs> it's it's actually interesting because right now, amongst the Indiegogo, you know, Kickstarter campaigns, like businesses are beginning to services and businesses are beginning to pop up, serving people who are making those campaigns. You know. That's yeah, and in fact, since my campaign has started, I've gotten at least two messages every day um, asking me if if I need help or telling me they can get me like 800 new backers or whatever, something crazy. Yeah, it's it's insane how that works. You know, it's just another microcosm, another Mm -hmm. situation that business is coming up. So so you used obviously InterChina as a way to find a a good factory, which is what InterChina is for. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, during that process, you didn't have any sort of difficulties communicating with the factory um not really uh there's definitely some china tendencies that i struggle with as we were Mm -hmm. getting into production but up front there was no issues at all so all right so then why i guess one of the questions i'll have is why indiegogo not kickstarter great question um there are there is significant more traffic on Kickstarter, and which is why you see most watch campaigns, well, shoot, most crowdfunding campaigns are on Kickstarter, right? But because Indiegogo is a little bit more niche, a little bit smaller, they have more incentive to see your campaign do well. Um, mm-hmm. Because if, if I do well, then they do well, right? Um, and this is case in point here. I, you know, I pushed hard on the Indiegogo campaign the first day, and I, I raised uh, $12,000 in the first day, mm-hmm. which put me on the new and trending section. It put me on the homepage of Indiegogo, and it put me on their featured section as well. And so, you know, two, three days later, the momentum is starting to die down, but there's still some traffic being driven to my page. And then I get a, an email from my representative that's uh, been in contact with me at Indiegogo saying, uh, we're going to feature you in our newsletter on Saturday morning. I said, great. Uh, I said, what What should I expect out of that? Should I expect, you know, maybe 20 new backers? And he, he said, a minimum of 50. And I was, you know, really skeptical. Um, but this this newsletter ends up going out to about a million subscribers. So, you know, it had a lot of potential. Well, mm-hmm. it turns out when the newsletter goes out, I'm featured number one on the on the newsletter and um, actually the subject line of the email as well. Wow. And so they, I end up getting an incredible amount of traffic, which I woke up that morning a little bit later actually. And the email had gone, gone out at like six thirteen AM. I woke up at eight to 
um, to about 45 backers at that point, and I was getting a new backer every minute. Wow. And it was just nuts. I, I had to rearrange my perks because they were, you know, they were um, limited, so I had to open it up a little bit more so I could accommodate for the new people coming in. And by the end of the day, I had done $31,000 and, you know, met my goal, exceeded it, and then some. And now I'm still seeing the benefits of that newsletter even today. So, so I get, you know, that's fucking insane, first of all. Yeah, <laughs> it's <But> insane. <laughs> it's insane, yeah. But the question I was going to ask, and I guess this kind of you kind of answered it. I was going to ask, what is the, you know, the Pareto principle, right? The the twenty percent that gives you the eighty percent uh, of your results. You know, right. what's the smallest thing that you've done in this process that gave you the largest return? I would say talking to individuals and selling to individuals. So. You know, I was doing all this stuff around branding and making pretty graphics and making sure everything was just right. That's like so minimal in the grand scheme of things. If you can convince somebody that your watch is great just one-on-one, then you've won over a new backer. And so for me it was how do I get the momentum started right away? And this is something that you know Nick and Tim had taught me and through Inner China, and that was if – if you can get the momentum going, you'll get featured, and then being featured gives you potential to get into the newsletter. And that is really what paid off because I, what I ended up doing was I exported my entire Facebook friends list, and then I segmented them by male, female. And since my watch is primarily targeted towards males, I just cut out all the females, and I individually messaged every single one of my 550 male Facebook friends. Mm-hmm. And you know how Facebook works most of those people I hadn't talked to in years. Yeah, of course. Um, but I, I started up a new conversation with them and, and we started small talk and, and it, you know, it was actually a lot of fun to catch up with people too. Um, so it wasn't just solely business purposes, but that's how it started. Um, and at the end of the day, I had 65 committed yeses from friends and family before I started my campaign. And it would have been better if I had more but I was pretty confident that the ones that hadn't committed to saying yes were still going to buy. They just hadn't gotten around to saying yes or the conversation hadn't quite gotten to that point yet. And so, and for me, it was, I was time sensitive because I was running out of my savings and (laughs) I just needed to, I just needed to get it going, you know? Um, and so it ended up paying off though, because on day one, um, you know, my friends and family came through in that first hour I raised, uh, $10,000 in the first hour and then, or no, 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 not 10. I raised $5,000 in the first hour, which everybody started sharing on Facebook. And like, literally people kept messaging me. They're like, I'm only seeing your watch in my newsfeed. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, everybody is talking about the Morvo watch, which really drove the momentum and got more people that I didn't know starting to back it. And by the end of the day, I had like, um, I think it was like 12,000, 12,000 backers. Um, and so I would say that was the single biggest thing that led to me being featured in the newsletter, which led to that $30,000 day. So just essentially putting in the work, reaching out to people individually, shaking hands, kissing babies. Exactly. exactly. Presidential campaigns, man. That's the good old campaigning. Yeah. No, I I agree, man. I think with with anything, it's like people want 
to you know if you can sit down with someone personally and just say hey this is what i'm doing and be honest about it people will, will help you out like especially if you have a personal connection with them i think a lot of times when people get into a business they feel shy to reach out to their like immediate friends and family because they just feel like ah, i don't want to be that guy right but when it comes to something that you believe in something that you're passionate about something that you know is going to provide value like an awesome watch like this you know there's nothing wrong with it i I think you shouldn't feel shy at all you know and Um, i found that most of my friends were really proud of me for doing this um which was something that was a bit surprising for me um i don't know maybe i had a low view of my friends but you know they they ended up saying uh man it's so it's so cool that you're doing this and a lot of them are saying i feel a part of this campaign because of how you're doing it via crowdfunding um and they're they're always checking back on the stats so it is a really a group mindset yeah and that's another thing i was thinking about is like now that i've started to work on you know uh, crowdfunding campaigns behind the scenes it is kind of cool. It's a little bit, you know, because you see these projects that are successfully funded and, you know, you hear about Kickstarter and it's like this sort of abstract thing where you, you think, I, I can't do that or I don't know anybody that's done that. But then when you have your friend, even if it's somebody you haven't spoken to in a couple of years and you're able to communicate directly with somebody who's doing this, I think a big part of it is people say, oh, like, you know somebody i know has done this which means it's real which means i could possibly do this myself and then they also think i get to see behind the scenes i get to be part Mm -hmm. of the club you know yeah was there any particular reason why you chose uh twenty thousand dollars as your goal yeah so you know when you order something via you know factory in china you have to have meet a minimum order quantity Mm mm-hmm and so I knew how much money I needed to pay the factory in order to get my first batch ordered. Um, and actually, that that number was actually $25,000. So I undercut myself by $5,000. And that actually was a, a very stressful decision. And I why? wouldn't recommend why did it. You, why did you cut, undercut yourself? So what did I the reason I ended up doing that was because it's all about percentages and momentum as we were talking about earlier. So if if I had 20,000 as opposed to 25,000, it looks mm-hmm. like I'm raising more of my goal faster, right? And so if I had done that 10,000 on the first day, it would have been uh you know, a different percentage than the the um what would that be? 20% <laughs> math is bad here, <laughs> but you know, 25%, sorry. Or, well, actually it was 50%, right? So I, I raised 50% on the first day. Right. And that, yeah. that was impressive, right. To Indiegogo as opposed to, as as opposed opposed to, like to 40 or yeah. right. Some yeah. odd number percentage because I had it at 25,000. Um, and so it was a lot easier to kind of run through my goal if I lowered it a bit. Now the danger in that is, is that you don't actually get the total amount that you need. And that was what my biggest stressor was. I actually didn't really relax in my campaign until I passed 25000 um, which happened really fast on Saturday. So it was easy after that to kind of take a deep breath. But the reason that I lowered it was so that I could um, kind of game the system, though. All right. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, actually, one thing I was kind of curious about as well is like, I know you flew back to the States for the campaign. 
Oh, is that yes. a conscious? Is that a conscious decision? It seems like quite a few people who have uh, Kickstarters or Indiegogo, if they're producing them in China, they do go back to the states or Canada for the campaign. Yeah, it it was a conscious decision. The the you know it goes back to what we were talking about. If I'm shaking hands and calling on people, I want to show them that I'm actually I actually mean business. So I showed up here in town a month before I started, and I just went around to all my friends and hung out with them. You know, and naturally we're going to talk about what I'm up to. And, and at that point, I'm showing them the prototype, and they're just falling more in love with it. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they're trying it on. And of course, once you get it on their wrist, they want to keep wearing it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so well then you got to get one. <laughs> And so it was very strategic in order to do that. I also wanted to be on the same time zone as my um, customer base because majority of my customers are in the United States. Um, although I am getting quite a few customers from around the world, but majority are in the United States. All right. So as like a, if you could give like a basic outline of your campaign, like what are the steps you took from the beginning to right now, what would that be? Yeah, so I mean first it's the mindset, right? I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to own my time. I want to start my own thing. Then after that, it's figuring out what is that going to be. Um actually, but even before that, Tim Ferriss has this thing about um plotting your dream day. I think it's called a dreamliner or something yeah. to that effect. I would strongly encourage you to go look that up on um Tim Ferriss's blog and and fill that out um because it really helps you to understand like what you want. And then once you understand what you want in life, then you can figure out how to get what you want. Yeah. Um, and so you start there, say, okay, I can, I can make that happen with my own entrepreneurial will. And so then it's like, okay, how, what is that specific thing going to be? Because you have to sell something, right? So you identify the idea. And then you niche down, okay, so I, I chose a watch. And then it was a matter of, well, I need specs. So I need to hire somebody that can do that because I have no for one, I don't have any artistic talent and I don't have any engineering talent to draw out the CAD drawings either. So I hired mm-hmm. somebody on Upwork to do both of those things. Um, and then once that was done, I took that design to a factory that I had found. You know, the best way to find a factory, I would say, is Alibaba. If you don't know anybody, if you do know somebody, ask them. And it's better to have a solid recommendation from somebody you trust than to take a risk on somebody you just met online. Um, or you could hire a sourcing company, wink, wink. Yeah, yeah. Or you could hire a sourcing company. Um, pitching. What is the name of your company? <laughs> I, I, I cannot say. Oh, you cannot say? Okay. Never mind. Scratch say. that. Anyways, yeah. Or you can hire a sourcing company um, to do that for you. Um, and then after that, you're just kind of sitting sitting on the factory, making sure they're producing what you want, um, visiting the factory often to show them that you mean business. You don't necessarily have to be in China through any of this. You can do all of this from the comfort of your couch in the United States of America or wherever you're from. Uh, but I would say that if you want to get a product that you are 100% happy with and want it to be right the first time, you have to be in China. Um, and you, you just have to go to the factory and get on their case whenever they are slacking off and not doing exactly what you want. Um, would you say you have to or like again could you hire the, a consulting you know, firm for you to, yeah to so it's of, either yep. so somebody has to be on the ground somebody has to be on the ground yeah. for sure yeah either you or somebody that you trust and hired to do that so that 
And then, like in terms of the actual marketing of the campaign, yeah. What so, the, what are the what are the steps that you took in that? When uh, I was, I, yeah, from go ahead. What, from what I know, you know, you you have to have samples. You have to send out the samples. Reach out to obviously the appropriate people, the tastemakers. How did you? What, what were the steps that you took in terms of marketing the campaign? Yeah. So when I wasn't in the factory, I was focusing on figuring out um, who would publicize my campaign, who I could get to talk about it. Um, but I spent a lot of time on that up front trying mm-hmm. to figure out who I could get to talk about it. And then I had a conversation with Tim actually. And I realized at that point that uh, I needed to focus more on the people that I was sure would buy. And then once I had more social proof, once the campaign was going, then I could approach, um, kind of the bigger publications and ask them to, uh, to cover me because now I have a successful campaign. People are already talking about it. And they're they're much more likely to cover you when they see that it's got momentum um, than than from the get go. So I fo- at that point I turned my attention to you know calling down that list basically of Facebook friends and friends from you know high school and and basically all of my family members. And so that took a long just holding conversations all night basically because I was twelve hours difference right. Um, and then when I wasn't doing that during the day, I was focusing on building the brand, building my social media presence, um, and and making sure that there was a consistent brand message. Um, and then also there's all these little tiny pieces that go into building a Indiegogo campaign. Like you have to have branded branded graphics, and you know you have to make sure that your story makes sense on the on the page, and do a video and take pictures and all that. So. All along the way, I was kind of filling in those slots as well. So then, are you saying like right now, this is now when you're going to start reaching out to the bigger publications? Yeah, I'm actually just, this week is going to be the beginning of my big PR push. So I actually haven't even reached out to (laughs) any major publications yet. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting because, I mean, you're at 60K you know, one would assume that you've had a ton of marketing involved, you know, like at least not marketing, but at least like, you know, reaching out to a couple of big publications. But it seems like you basically just reached out to your network and then also um, Indiegogo gave you a, an extra push uh, once yeah. you saw that your campaign was, was successful or at least picking up momentum. Yeah. And it's, you know, I noticed the kind of the trend with how people are supporting the campaign is, I'll get somebody to support it and then they will go and get maybe one or two more people on average to come mm-hmm. and support the campaign. So if I can activate my personal network, they're going to really drive more traffic. And and that was something that I was depending on um, significantly because I knew if I could increase my what they call go-go factor, then mm-hmm. the feature would be totally worth it. And so whether or not I was at 60,000 right now at this point in time, six days in, this was still going to be my week for the big PR push, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to saying I have 17,000 or I met my goal at 20,000. Now I can say I've exceeded it by 300%, you know, but, you yeah. know, it was, it was still going to be the week that I was going to share because I knew I would have enough momentum going to have a captivating story to tell. So, yeah, I mean, you're talking about, you know, that if you can get somebody to, subscribe to your campaign they'll they'll bring two more people i'm part of that because like for example when you hit i think when you hit 20 when you hit over 20 when you hit over your goal 
I was with my friends at the time like I was just kind of checking because I saw on Facebook and also I was obviously uh communicating with you trying to set up a podcast interview. Right. And I was with my friends at the time I was like, "Hey man, like look at this dude because my friends are are also interested in joining in Enter China." Mm, okay. So I'm like, "Hey man, here's Luke, he's part of Enter China, he's one of my buddies and look at his campaign. He just hit he just hit his goal. Like it's just I shared it naturally because one, I feel proud and then two, you know, I'm trying to encourage other people to 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 be entrepreneurship minded and like it's just something awesome that somebody else is doing that I know, right? Yeah. So yeah. Th- like you just naturally want to go, hey, man, thanks like, for I that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no worries, but I was just naturally gonna go like, hey, man, I know this guy and he's a cool guy and look at him, he's just as successful with his his campaign. Like that's pretty awesome, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you brought that up. That if one person gets on, then they bring a couple other people, you know. And again, it goes back to that group mindset. I get so many texts every day of people that are literally updating me for every, you know, $1,500 that I gain. They're like, what? This is keeping going. This is (laughs) incredible, man. Like, how are you doing this? Yeah, I'm I'm too cool for that, man. I just just throw in a congrats from time to time. You're you're suave, right? Yeah, I'm too suave <laughs> for that, man. I, I can't show too much excitement. Yeah, yeah Cafe Mocha it, doesn't do that. I don't do that shit, son. <laughs> uh, going forward, do you think that... I've, I've heard with some other campaigns, it's a little bit... Once they get like a ton of uh, investment, once they, they, they surpass their goals, kind of meeting the the rewards meeting the the, the demands because obviously a lot of these people uh, they're so they're expecting product at the end of the day do you do you think that you're gonna have any issues with that do you foresee any problems with that are you prepared you no know? i'm confident in my in my factory because they are working with watch companies that um are having to fulfill many more contributions than i am um mm-hmm. so i know that they have the capacity to fulfill it um, and I know that my timeline is reasonable and that's really, you know, the difference between, um, a frustrating crowdfunding campaign and a, and a, you know, a smooth campaign mm-hmm. is, you know, the ones that people get upset with the, the, the creators of the campaigns is because those creators didn't know what they were doing on the manufacturing side and they were, mm-hmm. they were unprepared. And then when, when their factory didn't meet the timeline that they had just kind of you know, made up out of thin air, then everybody else gets frustrated and it's just like craziness, right? Yeah. Well, I had a very clear expectation of, of what it would take to to make, you know, a thousand watches, let's say. And so I understood what the appropriate timeline was going to be, you know, typically 90 days. And so I put a little bit more buffer on top of that so that if I exceed the expectations, that just looks good for me, you know? And I, I very well do expect to exceed the expectations, but I'm going to give them a, a much longer time frame just so that I can have some buffer for any mistakes that might happen. So Yeah, and I think that's, again, that's like a little bit more of a, like a plug for EC as well. It's like if you're doing this in EC, there's so many people who have done this many times. And, you know, there's so many people going to let you know up front that, hey, man, like, you know, you have to have the manufacturing side set up properly in order to be successful. You're going to get a ton of money from people. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy from then. You still have to deal with manufacturing in China and you need to know what you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think I think that's the biggest difference between, like, people who are involved in this kind of community versus 
being in another country, being in Canada or the States and, you know, having this awesome product, awesome marketing campaign, but then not doing anything about manufacturing in China, you know? Yep, yep. What do you think is the biggest appeal for people with this watch? What do you think is really driving them to to buy this watch and why, why do you think they're really drawn to it? Obviously, the history aspect, but what, what else do you think is, is getting to people with the, with the Marvel? Yeah, I think, you know, I have a number of different theories to answer that question. At the end of the day, though, my personal belief is people buy what they think looks cool, you know? Mm. I think there are some outliers. Like I've got the pilots, the previous pilots who are buying it because it's got reclaimed airplane aluminum. They're like, that's awesome. I used to fly mm-hmm. planes. I want a plane on my wrist, you know. Um, but those that's like five people out of the 458 contributors. Um, yeah. So then there's the other people that are like, I love the minimalist look. And then there's people that are, you know, just – impressed by the whole campaign itself and want to support that so i think it's all over the board but i think at the end of the day what makes people click contribute and buy a watch is because they look at it and they say this is a good looking watch i want to wear this i think it's cool that it's made out of a metal that watches aren't traditionally made out of it's unique i'm gonna get it so nice so i was just thinking if somebody's listening to this and they don't know about the watch they've heard the the idea okay it's made from recycled aluminum uh, specifically aircraft aluminum does every watch literally come with a story or are they are the watches made from combined like different aircraft so is it like one aircraft like how does it uh how does it work how does that work yeah uh, you know one of the things that people keep commenting on my campaign from is like do you know the specific airplane that it came from and the answer mm-hmm. is no at this point um one of my missions here in in North Carolina there's actually a air force base called Maxton in uh, about two hours away from where I live in Charlotte, they have a boneyard there, and so I'm going to go out and visit them and see about getting some uh, some airplane wings and chopping those up and bringing them back with me, mm-hmm. um, so that I can track the lineage, I guess you would say, of the watch and say this is the specific airplane that it came from. Um, right now, I just know that I'm using um, generally recycled airplane aluminum, um, so it's hard to track the the lineage on that, but. Um, I want to be able to track the lineage because then that just ups the legitimacy of the brand and the story so much more. Yeah, for sure, man. I think that would be awesome. Like if everybody, when they get a watch, it comes with like a little story saying, you know, what plane this was from and what the, what adventures the plane went on, like, you know, uh, who the pilots were like that, that would just take it to the next level, you know? Absolutely. Like, um, so then right now with the, with the recycled aluminum, how do how do they source that how do they how does the factory source that how do you are you do you buy the the materials or do the factory does the factory do that for you how does that happen yeah so the factory i'm working with is <laughs> somewhat of a hybrid between a sourcing company and a factory and and the reason is because the factory is owned by an american or sorry a canadian guy who does um sourcing as well mm-hmm. for other products and so i originally hired him as the sourcing company and then i knew that he had this watch factory as an equity stake so i uh you know it, it kind of worked out that way so now they take care of all of my all the other pieces that come in actually the factory that i end up talking to um and that makes the final product they make one thing on the watch and that's just the case 
Um, everything else comes from somewhere else. The glass comes from somewhere else. The movement, the the case back, even the straps. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's so interesting how um, many factories are involved in the making of the final product. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, and they actually they actually just polish the case when it comes in. They don't yeah, even man, like even for me doing the sourcing that you know the, with the sourcing company that I have, it's like there's so many different factories involved and so many small details in every single product that you receive. You know, you just assume, hey, you know, I'm buying this MacBook and Apple makes this MacBook and they manufacture it. It's like, no, there's a there's a company that does manufacture. There's a company mm-hmm. that does packaging. There's a company that does like the, the the keyboards. There's a company that does the painting. There's a company that does like all these small, small things that you don't take into consideration. It's kind of crazy. You know that anything gets done for that matter with all the different moving parts. You know, it kind of makes sense why it takes so long to make something, you know, like a watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, now imagine making a MacBook. <laughs> oh my god, I yeah. can. You know. All right. So then, uh, what was that? I had another question. I kind of got taken aback. Oh yeah, uh, I was going to ask: Do you foresee any sort of difficulties moving forward now that you know you've been fully funded, uh, more than fully funded? W- where do you see the brand going yeah, in the future, and do you see any difficulties with that? Any challenges? Yeah, I mean, at this point, right, it's about creating a sustainable business. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, running a successful crowdfunding campaign doesn't mean that you have a business. It means that you did a little project and you were able to get some money. Now I have to take that money and continue to drive revenue through my website because I'm running a primarily an e-commerce business. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I'll I'll look into boutiques later and, and, you know, retail as well. But from the start, it's just going to be e-commerce. And so I've got to, got to figure that out, you know, advertising and, and, you know, marketing and figure out what it takes to drive, traffic to um to an e-commerce watch store but and that's where the business comes in and yeah are there going to be challenges absolutely i'm still learning as i go but i'm sure there's some things that i can take from the indiegogo campaign that i learned and and apply that to the e-commerce environment as well nice so again two two questions first one is very very serious man Whose hairy arm is that wearing one of the Marvel watches? <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely is that, is that, my hairy I, arm. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. I was like, I recognize that arm. I was like, <laughs> I recognize that hairy dude. Yeah. No, Unfortunately. That's a, that's a man's arm, man. That's, that's a man's, a man's arm. arm, yeah. yeah you can arm. barely see the watch because it's covered up by so much hair, huh? I'm like, man, like, you know, this is a manly man wearing that Marvel. Uh, the second the second question was I was just looking at the pledge levels. So how do you decide? How did you decide? Like what are the what the pledge levels were? And uh, um, clearly, what's been the most successful one? What's the one that you've gotten the most contributions to? So up front, I wanted a a level that my friends and family could come in at mm-hmm. that um, was enticing and inviting for them. And so I wanted to make it sub 100. Um, I have a retail price in mind, which is $200, and that's based on what the market will bear. Uh, you know, I have my costs in mind too, but if you just make your retail based on like 4X costs or something, you're not considering 
the market? You know, do they actually want something at that price? Yeah. And so it's up to you to figure out what the retail will be based on what the market will bear and then figure out how to get your costs to a point where the margin makes sense, right? And so I was I knew what my margins were would be and I knew that I needed to offer a significant discount on Indiegogo um, to incentivize these early adopters, right? And that's essentially what Indiegogo or crowdfunding is, is encouraging your early adopters to get out there and buy and then promote the brand when you go into mass production. Um, and so, you know, for me, 99 was easy for my, my friends and family to come in at. And then after that, it was sl- slowly upping the price because you don't want it to be so significantly reduced in price that it's not even realistic to, to gauge if these people would buy your, your watch at the normal yeah. retail price. Because yeah. at 50% off, those are not $200 watch buyers. Those are $100 watch buyers. Exactly. You know, and they're actually probably $50 watch buyers, but they were upping their, their price by 50 because they liked me. You know, mm-hmm. um, And so, so I'm trying to get it as close over time to 200 so that I can gauge how much people actually would buy into a $200 price point. So you had a limit for you know the amount of people who would buy the watch for ninety nine. Like right exactly. Now I'm, seeing, yeah. I'm seeing like one hundred and twenty five bucks. It's uh you have two hundred. That's the limit. So after two hundred, then they have to pay a little bit more. Yes, yeah, one hundred and forty nine after the one hundred and twenty five perk. Um, yeah, one hundred and forty nine. Yeah, exactly. So I had ninety nine for a hundred units, and mm-hmm. then I had a hundred and nine for a hundred units, and then a hundred and nineteen. Actually, 109 was 25 units. Actually, let me let me just check. <laughs> yeah, it, it was uh, 109 was 25, and then 119 was 100 units, and then after that, it was at 125 for 200 units, and then 149 will be where I rest for the rest of the campaign. So um, after the the 200 125 dollar perk is sold out. So just to summarize, the, the basic idea was to you know have enough like have a price point that was good enough for your friends and family to initially be the the initial backers mm-hmm. and then to slowly amp it up closer to your actual retail price to kind of have an idea of how many people would actually pay for this watch at retail exactly exactly right. yeah that makes sense um let's shift the conversation a little bit i think we've covered uh, the campaign pretty in detail unless you have uh, if there's anything else that I missed out that you wanted to comment on specifically with the campaign strategy and, and uh no I think that covered it all right so let's let's talk a little bit more about inspiration man like what inspired what other campaigns inspired you what other campaigns did you draw inspiration from <laughs> well uh you know the i guess the original e c member and the original you know watch the campaign Ryan. Yeah, Ryan Beltran <laughs> with the original grain. I mean, they just crushed it. And they just did uh, another campaign here actually recently, and they crushed that one as well. Hmm. Um, I think they reached 400,000 400, on that campaign. So Wow. Yeah, that definitely inspired me. Um, other watch campaigns, Ventura, Lexel from Tim and Nick. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just just seeing that crowdfunding is a viable option and 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 that was a good option for me to go so awesome and then also um what's been your proudest entrepreneurial moment to date 
<laughs> uh, I think it was Saturday. <laughs> Saturday, right? Yeah, when $30,000 came in in one day, I was like, what is going on? <laughs> and actually, a good friend of mine uh, messaged me and was like, you you need to enjoy this. Remember this moment and celebrate this moment. Um, uh, take some time off right now and just, just celebrate. Don't Don't feel like you have to keep going back to work right away. Um, enjoy this moment. I think that was a really good piece of advice. Did you did you go out? Of yeah, I abs- did. absolutely did. Yeah, and I I picked up a hundred and sixty dollar tab too. <laughs> <laughs> you went out and then you balled out, right? I balled out. Yeah, <laughs> which nice. you know on my my dreamlining, uh, you know, setting up my future. That was one of the things was being able to to cover you know friends and be able to pay for friends and stuff like that. So. And then uh, going uh, as well with inspiration and entrepreneurship, what, if someone were to understand you better, what three books should they read? Hmm, that's a good one. So I would say that Richard Branson came out with a book called um, Screw It, Just Do It. And that was a really big inspiration for me as far as um, this entrepreneurial mindset, like this guy that, you know, was told that he wouldn't even pass school, you know, get all the way through high school, ends up dropping out of high school and starting a multi-billion dollar empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that for me was super inspiring. I've always been inspired by Richard Branson's story and, and his adventures in entrepreneurship. Um, yeah, I don't know who, what podcast I was listening to, but they were saying like if Richard Branson was like he's basically he does everything that every kid says they would do if they became a billionaire right know? he just like, do, yeah <laughs> he, he doesn't like, even think about it he just does it he just does it it's like hey man I'm gonna go to, if I had a billion dollars I would go to space They're like yeah of course you know, that's Richard Branson in real life like you know. <laughs> I mean that's that's the kind of life I want to live where um, you just say yes it's just mm-hmm. a yes life so um after that uh man you even asked me this question ahead of time and i'm having a hard time answering it (laughs) (laughs) we we dig deep here at rpg man (laughs) we dig deep um yeah i would say east of eden by john steinbeck even though i know it's a fiction book sorry Um, good that's a a huge part of my it's called East of Eden. Yeah, East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Just tells the story of a of a family that goes through a lot of trials but but uh you know fights to uh to succeed in life and so I think that's a very similar mindset there. And then lastly I think I would go with The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, which nice. is I don't know if you've read the book or heard about it. I have definitely. Okay, it's you know it's just a, a tale of adventure and wandering and kind of seizing every moment and trying to find what your life's uh, purpose is and I resonate th- with that a lot and uh, you know the kind of lifestyle that the uh, main character lives in that book so definitely would encourage and it's a short one so if you're looking for an easy read pick up The Alchemist. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ben, we've covered almost everything about. Uh about the campaign well i appreciate you uh allowing me to answer some of these questions and um going deep with you 
For sure, man. Is there, again, is there anything else that you that I missed up, uh, missed out on, or is there anything that you wanted to specifically cover? No, I think that's it. I would just say, um, just do it. You know, get out of your own head and go do it. I have so many friends that come up to me all the time and say, you know, Luke, you do the things that we say we're going to do one day, mm-hmm. and. And I, I told him, I, I said, that the only reason I'm doing that is because I realized that that was what was happening. I was saying I was going to do things one day and then never actually doing it. And any barrier that you come across that you say, oh, I can't do it because of X, you know, that's just an excuse. There's always a way around those things. If you have debt, you're probably saying, I can't do this because I have school loans or I have a credit card debt. There's a way around that. You can figure it out. I can't do this because I don't have a big enough savings account. There's a way around that too. I struggled with both of those problems, mm-hmm. and I got through that and was able to get to China. You know, I I went to India in November. I decided I was going to quit my job in December. Um, tendered my resignation in February, and I was in China in March. Nice. That's so, crazy. So you know, if you want to do it, you can make it happen. Um, Stop making excuses. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think for sure, man. I think uh, a lot of it is a, definitely like an excuse mindset, we, negative mindsets, you know. Um, people. It's also like who you surround yourself with because I think it, once you get into sort of a uh, circle of people, a group of people that are all uh, have a, a shared mindset, like if, they, if it's doing business in China or if it's just being entrepreneurship-minded regardless – then you you kind of feel more confident and you have a support system behind mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. you know i think people get caught up in in like a lot of bullshit and a lot of like you know everyone's like hey you know i have to be responsible i have to have this nine to five i have to save up money for this house this car and all that stuff and you know I, you're just lying to yourself really you know mm-hmm. what what do you think is the just before we leave off what do you think is the biggest misconception people have had about uh the stuff that you're doing um, maybe your friends, maybe you know other people that you've just talked to generally. What do you think is the biggest misconception people have about, let's say, going to China for business or doing a a Kickstarter or Indigo campaign? Um. I, well, personally, and I don't know if this, I don't know if it's been the same for you. It, what I'm hearing a lot is that's dangerous isn't it <laughs> china is a communist country isn't that dangerous yeah, yeah definitely um, so i get that the most but uh, i would in the answer to that question is no um they're just happy that we're spending money and making their economy money um mm-hmm. so i haven't had a single security issue and i've been to china four times now um <laughs> and i've lived there for quite a few uh, well months and you've lived there even longer a couple of years now right no, no, man. I've been here for like uh, nine months. I'm going oh, nine months nine ago. Nine months now, yeah. Yeah. But this is like this is my second time coming to China. The first time I came was when I was sixteen for a couple of weeks. Yeah. But yeah, I haven't had any real security problems down here. You know? mm-hmm. Just be I smart. Did, yeah, just be smart. Like, don't get into fights with locals. That's mm. just not. It's yeah. not a smart idea. You know. Getting in fights in general is not a smart idea. <laughs> yeah, just in general, yeah. Not, you know, for me, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Anyways. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think for me, the biggest misconception has been like people just not fully grasping the amount of opportunity, the amount of money here. 
you know mm, yeah like when i was telling people that i was i was moving to guangzhou uh, when i was moving from canada like about i think i decided about two years ago or a year and a half ago and um i was telling people and they're like oh my god guangzhou like well, what the fuck is there like do you know is is there like clean water is there is there <laughs> running is there running water is there electricity <laughs> is there running yeah i'm like dude you know guangzhou is like three times the size of toronto bro like <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's the it's what is it third largest city in in china yeah third largest city in china probably top 10 largest cities in the world like yeah you know there's significantly more money and investment and growth going on in guangzhou and then, of course, just in and around Guangzhou, ninety percent of the world's products are made here. Ninety yeah. percent of, you know, the seven billion people in the world, you know, their products are made here. So I'm assuming there are some opportunities in this area. You know, that's, yeah, that's just a few. And I, in fact, it's 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 distracting um, how many opportunities are available once you get on the ground in China. Yeah, uh, yeah if you don't sure. have focus, like razor sharp focus you will get pulled into all sorts of different ventures that may or may not succeed, but they're always coming up and you just have to focus on one thing and be successful at that and then move on to the next. Yeah, for sure, man. Like I, I I'm happy that I, I, I was conscious about that, you know, mm-hmm. because I, I was also, when I first got here, I was like, Oh my God, like you have this two week period, especially when, if you come and you're exploring, if you don't just come and, and you're immediately thrust into like a job or something because when i came my first month i wasn't really doing much so i decided to just explore guangzhou and like get to know people meet people so i was going to like the markets and i would even just hop on the train and go to like the last station on you know multiple different lines and you know my mind just kind of like went through this period where i was just like taking in all this information taking all these uh different businesses various different markets and then like after a week or two you expand and you go like i have a hundred different business ideas that i can get yeah. on you know <laughs> it's like what's going to be the most successful <laughs> exactly what's going to be that i had no idea and then after a couple of months you know going back and forth with my friends and just general self-improvement perspective is just like you need to just pick something and run with it just burn yeah. it to the ground because certainly there are more things that are more successful than watches yeah um but that was what i decided on and i decided to stick to it and, and make that work yeah. um if you make a decision you can make it work yeah for sure so, yeah so that's a big thing as well when you're here you need to you need to pick something and focus on it. I think just in general, people get mm-hmm. distracted. You know, there's always a new, there's always a new shiny object that's going to distract you. Mm-hmm. You know, but yeah, man, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Like, uh, love to have have you on again. Like, maybe when your campaign is done, or maybe a few yeah. months down the line. When absolutely you know. can tell you a little bit more about e-commerce, maybe at that point. For sure, man. Uh, yeah, so. Again, you know, if you like the episode, follow us at Red Pill Gen at Twitter. And if you want to email me, that's Cafe Mocha oh, at redpillgen.com. Oh, you can man. check out oh, the website, redpillgen.com. G-E-N. And I'll check you out later. Yeah, I learned a game from William Wesley. You can never check me. Back to back for the niggas that didn't get the message. Back to back like I'm on the cover of Lethal Weapon. Back to back like I'm Jordan 96, 97. Whoa. 
very important and very pretentious. When I look back, I might be mad that I gave this attention. Yeah, but it's weighing heavy on my conscience. Yeah, and fuck you left the boy no options. I wanna see my niggas go insane.